It's a magnificent city. I want to talk about the museums of Paris, not the big ones necessarily, but the wonderful little charming museums and special ways we can get an insight into the great culture of France and of Europe. I'm joined by Elizabeth Van Hest. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. Thank you, et bonjour. Bonjour. You are so French to me, but you're actually a Dutch girl. Tell me how a Dutch girl ended up in Paris. Oh, like many others. You see, we go there because the French language is extremely difficult. We learn it at school, you study, study, and then after you pass your exams, you really can't speak. So I thought I had to go to France, and I had a so great in, in the chance. Netherlands, you learned enough to get the, the past the class, but you realized oh, yes. you needed to know better. So to be you, honest, so my went, English is still from school. Oh, yeah. I never went to an English-speaking country because, you see, I intended to. I was going one year to France and then to maybe Australia or England or and then to a German-speaking country because it was a long time ago and that uh-huh. were the three most important languages for us. But then... You went to Paris? Yeah, I never left. Never left? I'm still there. And that was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> and, wow. and now you're a guide in Paris. Yes. Wow. When you have a visitor coming to Paris and you want to just really find a charming small museum, an underappreciated museum, where do you take people? Well, I first tell them that every corner in Paris is a museum. For me, walking along the River Seine is a museum, but a lively museum. So how so? Because there's so much to see, Rick. If you just walk through a street in Paris, you look up and you see something new, even after you have lived there for 38 years. You know, you said look up. That is so important, isn't it? Yes, yes. If you don't look up, all you see is 21st century people, which is not bad, but don't forget, upstairs. Especially in Paris. Yeah. Uh, well, mind, of course, where you're walking. Don't hurt your <laughs> legs because uh, we were very indisciplined in Paris. We parked the cars, you know, half on the street, half on the sidewalk. So they put very often those little pillars That's right. to avoid that. Those pillars are, are positioned in a way that can be very painful if you walk oh, into yes. them. Oh, yes. Especially if you're a man. But, <laughs> well, no, they're low. It's, uh, it's your it's your, your knees. <laughs> okay. Maybe oh, it's I'm... even below your knees. <laughs> okay, but well. uh, believe me, it, uh, well, they have other, but we speak about that another time. If you're in Paris and you yes. want to be swept away by the exquisite, sumptuous, artistic richness of the Middle Ages, yes. where do you go? I go to Cluny. The Cluny Museum. Yes. Right there in the Latin Quarter. Yes. Why? Because, you know, some of our smaller museums, they are housed in a building that was never built to become a museum. Right. So first of all, you have a special atmosphere. Right. Hotel de Cluny was built at the end of the 15th century right. for the abbot of Cluny. You know, this big, big order, religious okay. order yeah. that has been founded, I think it was 910 in, in Burgundy. And they had their house in Paris. So this was a mansion for a very important church leader. Exactly. And today, what do you find inside? And today, uh, thanks to an, uh, a private, collect, you say collector, yeah. it is a museum with a magnificent collection of medieval artwork, but also utensils, you know? You learn, really, about the Middle Ages. Little utensils, you mean? Yes. Little uh, things that you you live with. Yes. So you get an intimate understanding of medieval life in the Cluny Museum, C-L-U-N-Y. And for me, this unicorn tapestry... Oh, that is it so is, beautiful. You just look at that, you know, it's, it's dark but beautifully lit, so your attention just goes to this yes. exquisite tapestry. From what century is this? Um, it's medieval, and I don't think anybody knows really 
the exact date, let's say around 1400. Okay, so it's uh, before the Renaissance, that's for sure. Yes. Yeah, and yes. you get the exquisite character of the Middle Ages, both the elegance of yes. the wealthy people and the delightful little details. Yes. You know, the lady, because yep. she is in fact a person, uh, the main person, because the... She's a the, historic the, individual. The, t- the title is the lady with the unicorn. Oh, that's right. And this lady, oh, she's a wealthy lady. I always look at her clothes. And she's dressed like the people. Wealthy people were dressed, of course, in those days. You see, uh, always double layers. And to show how wealthy you were, you would lift up the upper layer and you could see the dress in underneath. So, it so she was should proud be a, of her wealth and oh, she I showed it so. off in her fine fabric. Oh, I think so. And she's, she's covered with beautiful jewelries. And on each scene, she has another uh, haircut or her wow. hair is covered by a different... Now, hat. that's one occasion, Elizabeth, where I was so thankful to have the information provided by the museum so I could uh, try to bring some meaning to each of those beautiful panels. Mm-hmm. When you read about it, you get into a medieval mind frame. Yes. No, it is beautiful. You see, uh, the tapestry is red, and everywhere there are flowers, yeah. tiny little birds and animals, and there is a kind of a, an island a dark green-blue island on which the lady is standing. And uh, sometimes there is a a smaller lady next to her, which probably is a servant, and, uh, of course, the animal, the unicorn. And what is the symbolism of the unicorn? Why is that there? um, Well, that's a a, a mysterious mythological figure, um, animal, that, according the legend, can only be caught by a virgin. Oh, so it's yes. uh, all wrapped up in this wonderful lady, and she's an aristocratic woman or a yes, whatever. Yes, we, we think it was woven maybe as a wedding present. So if you're inspired by this sort of um, elegance from the uh, centuries past and you want to go to the best Gothic interior, where would you go? Saint-Chapelle. Easy question. Yes, and it has been restored many times. Now, this is a cathedral of glass. Yes, not a cathedral. No, I mean, but it's like a a lantern. I mean, in in a sense, it's just like a treasure chest. You know, in architectural uh, expression, you say a skeleton, and this is really a skeleton. If you would take out the windows... You would have really a, a skeleton of, yeah, of stone. Yeah, you know, that's a very good point. It, it is a, and, and that's the whole notion of Gothic. It becomes a skeleton of stone, which holds all of that beautiful medieval glass. Yes. Telling all sorts of Bible stories. Yes. I have often compared the glass windows with the skin. Yeah. You know, because your right. skin doesn't hold up anything. Right. It is just surrounding that's the skeleton. That's a beautiful thing. Now, I understand that King, which king? This is Louis, Louis the Ninth, that the we call Saint Louis. Saint Louis. I understand, and maybe this is just, uh, I'm not sure if this is right. Tell me what you think, that Louis paid more for the crown of thorns than he paid for the building of the beautiful church that he built to house the crown of thorns. Yes, exactly. And he also had a a beautiful shrine with precious stones. To hold the the crown of thorns? Yes. It doesn't exist anymore, of course. No, it's unfortunate. But when I walk up that dark, narrow, spiral staircase... yes. ...and I pop into that gloriously lit building, it's best to go when the sun's bright. Yes, and sometimes people think it has to be very bright and sunny weather. It's not necessary. Okay. Uh, The best is when there is a light that is uh, equal everywhere, you know? Really? Not, yeah, because not a harsh light coming in on the side. Okay. If you have very bright sunshine, uh, you can't see really the scenes. Nice. That's a good tip. 
Now, let's take another slice of Paris. We're, we're just, I'm talking with Elizabeth Van Hest. We're talking about the cultural wonders of Paris that are hiding out. Of course, we know the Orsay Museum is a wonderful collection of Monet's, and it was the post-Louvre collection, right? A, yes. A, a generation ago, they took all of the different museums in Paris that had art after 1848 or something like this, yes. put them together to match the Louvre. You do the Louvre, yes. and that takes you from ancient times until the middle of the 19th century. Yes. And then we go into the more modern art. Of course, there are great gem museums dealing with Impressionism outside of the Orsay. Where would you go? Well, first of all, you go to the Orangerie. The Orangerie. Orange Treehouse. Orangerie. You know, next to palaces, and as you right. know, the Louvre was a palace, they build orange tree houses. Because, to house the orange trees. And why did they have orange trees? Oh, Rick, I think you know that. <laughs> because it was not so smelling very well inside of palaces. So they used orange trees also inside of palaces. Think of Louis XIV. I they, didn't know that, actually. I mean, didn't... I thought it was to impress your subjects that you were a divine monarch, that you could grow well, oranges in a controlled climate. Of course, you can explain it in different ways. Okay, but and tell me I'm about sure this, uh, right. this uh, fragrance they, issue. Well, the first time they used the orange trees, as far as I know, because I didn't live in the <sighs> 17th century, right. But um, it was to make it smell better. Lovely. They didn't eat So they, it they had the orange tree uh, house outside of the biggest palace in Europe, the Louvre. Yes, and or, the, or and in Versailles first. In, or in Versailles, I mean, In Versailles yeah. first, and they used the small ones in the Hall of Mirrors. Yeah. And that's why they grew them outside. They had to grow them somewhere. And that yeah, was in the orangerie. So today the orangerie yeah. houses not oranges but water lilies. Yes, Yes. Uh, that is since, oh, I don't know exactly the date, but in the beginning of the 20th century, it, is, it already was a museum. It's interesting that people think of the, the Orsay for their Monet paintings, but really the ultimate Monet paintings really are his water lily collection. Yes. And you see that at the Orangerie. And you know, um, Monet offered these um, water lilies to France uh, on the day uh, of armistice, you know, on the day that the First World War came to an end. I didn't he know wanted, that. Yes, he wanted it to be a present for peace. And what is more peaceful than his paintings, the water lilies. That's beautiful. So yes. 1918, after this horrific war, Monet, was he still in France at this time? Yes, he was painting in, in his in gardens Giverny. in Giverny Outside and in his Paris, house. Yeah. And he was the uh, one of the best friends of Georges Clemenceau. To celebrate peace... And to, to celebrate peace, to remind people that peace is better than war, he gave yes. this precious collection of paintings to the government, yeah. to the people, really. Because, you see, his one of his best friends was Georges Clemenceau, and he played a very important role politically in those days. So um, Georges Clemenceau was allowed to come to Giverny and make his choice. So Monet was thanking Clemenceau for being a force for peace. Is that the idea? Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah well, that's well, great. And today when you go to the Orangerie, and you got to go there, it's right in yes. the Tuileries Gardens, right, next oh, to the yes. Place de la Concorde. And, you know, they have restored it. It was closed for many, many years, and... Uh, it's much better again. And downstairs, there's wonderful 20th century collection yes, of paintings. that's what the they did during the restoration. There's another collection of paintings outside of Paris that's wonderful for Monet lovers. Marmottin. Oh, yeah, Marmottin. Tell us about Isn't the Marmottin. Isn't that pretty? I love it. And it's you go through, you go, It's just delightful to walk through the park from the metro stop to get there. Yes, very exquisite part of Paris. You know, when I was an au pair girl, so that was 38 years ago. I still saw these uh, nannies right. with this beautiful, uh, how do you call that, where the baby is 
in Car- uh, uh, carriage. You know what you see carriage. in the 19th century yeah. picture? They were still there. In that, the park. You don't see that no, anymore. No, but you do no. see mothers and their children yes. or, or families yes. there in the playground. Yes, in the playground. Now, when you go to the Mamartan Museum, what was so impressive to me is the uh, the Monet paintings. Mm-hmm. And isn't the painting that gave the name exactly. to the entire movement there? Impression Soleil Levant. Impression uh-huh. Sunrise. Impression, sunrise. sunrise. Soleil levant. So you can go to the Mamertan and see the painting that gave the name to the entire movement. Yes. And, you know, this is what Monet, um, most of these paintings you see in Mamertan, he kept it in his house in Giverny. And once he passed away, first of all, his daughter-in-law kept the house. And then he had only one son who inherited. And he donated it all to the Mamertan Museum. That's why the Marmottan has such a big collection of Monet paintings. Huh. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm learning a lot about the great little museums in Paris with Elizabeth Van Hest. Elizabeth, we've been talking about Impressionism. Of course, the rallying cry of the Impressionist artists was out of the studio, into the daylight, into the sunshine. Yes. And you said, and, and we started this little discussion talking about how in Paris, just walking down the streets is like walking down a museum. Oh, yes. If you want to go to a little park in Paris and, and get the the spirit of Monet and the Impressionists, where would you go? Um, well, one of my favorite parks is, of course, Jardin de Luxembourg. Oh, yeah. Um, but you can also go to Bois de Boulogne. Really? Hardly anybody goes there because it's on the exterior of Paris. Yeah. We call it one of the two lungs because we have two very big parks. One of the lungs of Paris, yeah. Yes, because it's green, so it gives the air. And you need air in your lungs. And, and a, nice, a city needs lungs. And if you wanted to enjoy the dappled sunlight. Oh, very romantic. <laughs> you could go to the Bois, uh, Bois de Boulogne. Bois de Boulogne. And you see, when you go during the day, you walk around and you can take a little um, barge mm-hmm. and you go on an island where, of course, is a restaurant. Uh, we are in France, after all. Huh? Of course. And so you can have a nice meal outdoors in the summertime. And then you could set up your canvas and capture the moment. Exactly. Elizabeth Van Hest, thanks a lot, and I'll see you in Paris soon, I hope. Oh, au revoir. Au revoir. Each year, Rick Steves' tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries, all designed to make Europe's rich history and great art come to life. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.